This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Over the past weeks and months, we have pretty much become the COVID-19 slash Donald Trump show. This is not something we ever aspired to, but how can we not become that given our current situation? We forward promoted on last week's program that we would be speaking today with Stephen J. Harper. And by God, that's what we intend to do. Stephen J. Harper is an attorney, an adjunct professor at Northwestern University Law School, and a very prolific author. To date, he has four books to his credit, and he blogs at the Belly of the Beast. His op-eds have appeared in the New York Times and numerous other publications. Stephen Harper was also the creator of the Trump-Russia Timeline, originally at BillMoyers.com, which now appears at Dan Rather News and Guts. If you're a regular listener to this program... You know that a timeline like that is the sort of thing we'd love to discuss with the person who put it together. And it's true. We'd love to. But despite having the author of that timeline ready to speak with us today, we're going to want to discuss a different set of timelines he has created, which can be currently found on BillMoyers.com. These relate to the coronavirus pandemic, specifically how in the United States the mendacity and manipulations of Donald J. Trump have made matters disastrously worse for Americans. In his first of a score of said timelines, one written in the last week of March, the question was asked, how many will die from Donald Trump's lies? That was an insightful question to ask in the earliest weeks of the coronavirus contagion. And while health researchers still guess at what that tally will ultimately is likely to be, two things are certain. First, it will be an astonishingly high number. And second, it did not need to be. At its current rate of expansion, the pandemic will, by December, claim more American lives than World War II combat deaths, and it will have done so in 11 months, not three and a half years. Stephen Harper's timelines at BillMoyers.com are an indispensable tool to understand both the true nature of this disaster and how mismanaged it has been from the very beginning. We suggest, if you're not driving, you pull it up as we conduct this chat And be sure to bookmark the site for your profit by returning to those timelines again and again. Let us not talk about this unprecedented and avoidable disaster. It is a good fortune to be able to do so with Stephen Harper. And our pleasure to be able to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Steve Harper. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate being here. I was hooked on your work when I read in your first timeline, dating to last March, quote, Trump's magical thinking and contradictory messages about the coronavirus have created public confusion. The consequences are becoming catastrophic, end quote. Now, when you wrote that, the death toll in America was had just passed 1,000. It's now 200 times worse than that. Is this not worse than the catastrophe you feared just six months ago? Far worse. And I have to tell you, it's distressing beyond words. I had no idea that I would be so unfortunately prescient, frankly, in the title of the of the first post. And I never dreamed in a million years that when we were looking at a thousand deaths that we would be looking at, well, according to the latest estimate, around 400,000 by January 1st. It's mind-boggling. Part of the problem, I think, frankly, is that it's a number that is so mind-boggling that I think people are almost numb to it. Unless it hit you personally, it becomes just another number. And 
Tragically, that is a function of Donald Trump's failed leadership, no question about it. Every mistake you could make in managing this pandemic, uh, he has made. And he's even created some that people didn't even think possible. You certainly do seem prescient in in posing that question right at the onset. Did your prior work on Trump and Russia convince you as to where this was likely to go in those early confused months? Because obviously not everybody was as fearful as you were about a bad outcome. Maybe that was due to others not fully appreciating Trump's past behavior. Well, here's what I had learned in spades from my work with the Trump-Russia stuff. The facts never get in the way. The truth never gets in the way. And whatever he can do to spin a situation that'll get him out of the immediate moment of potential problem, uh, he will do, whether it's a lie or whether it's a a magical miracle that's on the horizon, uh, any number of things. So what I learned in, in spades was that Trump, and unfortunately he has far too many allies in his ability to do this, is just willing to to press ahead in the face of everything, and that means lying. It means if things get bad, you lie about them. And so what I started this, and my thought when I started it, is that what we're now going to be in for, however this goes, is for a series of Trump lies. And that's frankly the reason I started. I didn't dream it would become a uh, you know, tw- I think I'm up to 25 installments or something. Yeah. I never dreamed it would go on because I never dreamed the mistakes would continue to compound. I knew there would be lies in the process, but my goal was simply to try, as the situation unfolded, to call him out on the lies, to give people a straight shot or at least a, a fighting chance at what the truth was. So that's what I had learned from Trump Russia, that we were going to be bombarded by lies, not falsehoods, not misinformation lies, just flat out, call it what it is, lies, which finally some of the media are willing to to use that word. There's no other word that captures them. Yeah, I I see it on CNN frequently these days, which is encouraging. (laughs) Right, exactly. Yeah, there's somebody that writes the cryons at CNN that, that has a not only a sense of humor, but I think an appropriate sense of fear about where we're headed with this guy. Well, several of your timelines return to the earliest missteps taken by Trump. What did not happen in January and February set the tone for all that has followed. Can we review those first two months and the key opportunities that were lost? Sure. Trump never wants to talk about South Korea, but if you look at the comparative experiences of South Korea and the United States, it dramatically illustrates how much worse off we are because uh, Trump was calling the shots. South Korea and the United States had their first confirmed cases of coronavirus same day at the end of January, I think it was the 21st or 22nd. Uh, South Korea was prepared for it. They swung into action. They uh, immediately uh, instituted uh, aggressive nationwide testing, contact tracing, got manufacturers lined up to deal with uh, personal protective equipment for medical workers. And as a result, I think South Korea today has, I don't know, 300 350 deaths. I haven't checked lately. 384 as of yesterday. Well, there you go. 400. And we're on our way, according to the latest estimates that the White House relies on out of the University of Washington, we're on our way to 400,000. Yeah. That sort of captures it. If you blow the, the thing out of the gate, it's really hard. If you if your horse falls out after they say they're off coming out of the gate, you're going to have a hard time catching up. <laughs> and we, we've never caught up. We have never caught up. And frankly, I think for the last several months, what you're seeing is since the so-called Trump pivot to the sort of, well, we're just going to pretend it's gone. We're going to pretend we've won. He's still saying we've turned the corner, just pretend it away. And we're giving up on it. He called himself a war president. Well, he's surrendered. And the cost is lives that continue to be measured. And we never, as I say, we never never caught up. There was an article earlier this week in the Wall Street Journal 
about how medical workers and frontline responders still cannot get N95 masks, which are the, the ones you need in order to really protect yourself from this virus. That's beyond astonishing. That's embarrassing. We're in the ranks of third world countries on something like face masks. Are you kidding me? Just yeah. beyond belief. Well, I, I did the arithmetic. Uh, well, Korea, of course, has a smaller population than us, one-sixth. But with less than 400 fatalities, their per capita basis is 185th of our mortality rate. Yeah. yeah, they've got some wiggle room before they catch us, that's for sure. <laughs> the last time I looked, we were in the top eight or nine worst countries in deaths per 100,000 in the world. That's out of 143 countries. We're among the worst 10 in the world. This might be a good time to, to plug the piece of comic art that is out there that, that tells the story of Korea versus the United States. I, I don't remember the website. Insider. Insider, exactly. That, that's definitely worth everybody checking out because it is so, just so well done and so accurate. It absolutely is, and it's impressively so. And in the world of comic strip and graphic novels, it's the sort of thing that people, I think, can understand. I think it's extremely well done, and it's I can tell you as the based on the work that I've done, it's completely accurate. Indeed. A website is being set up by us, titled TrumpPandemic.net. I can tell you that it's, we're still not quite ready to get it out there. But on our second page, we have directed people to your timelines at BillMoyers.com, also the insider piece of artwork and a rather simple timeline that was put out by Congressman Lloyd Doggett of Texas, which is simple but yet yet pretty good. So... That's another way to find it. We want to direct everyone we can to you through this interview and through the website. Thanks for the plug. We're speaking with attorney Stephen Harper, author and adjunct professor of law at Northwestern University, about his numerous coronavirus timelines, which appear on BillMoyers.com. If we look at basic epidemiology, uh, you know, an infectious disease gets controlled by testing, contact tracing, and isolating as appropriate. Testing, of course, is most fundamental to controls. And with modern technology, we had a COVID test pretty early on. Yet, Donald Trump, by his own admission, has slowed testing every step of the way. Is this not criminal? Negligent homicide, I think, <laughs> is, the, is the legal term for it. I, I'm not really joking. What he's doing and has done and continues to do, four of the last six days, he's held non-socially distant political rallies with thousands of people, uh, very few of them wearing face masks. It's as if everything's, everything's fine. Never mind that in his wake, he leaves literal death and, and destruction. If you didn't learn the lesson of Herman Cain, and, and you probably uh, are, are well on top of this, but, oh, yeah. you know, he resumed his rally in Tulsa, his campaign rallies, his first rallies after the pandemic. And by the way, he continued having rallies throughout February and into early March, even as he and, and others knew in the administration knew the seriousness of what, what was happening in terms of the pandemic, uh, he continued to sort of brush it away. But So they resumed this rally in, in June in Tulsa, and, and it's indoors. The managers of the, of the facility had actually put in place cards on seats that were designed to keep people socially distant during the rally. Well, Trump campaign staffers came through and tore those off, so there was no social distancing, virtually no face masks. And one of the people in attendance was one of Donald Trump's leading black supporters, Herman Cain, the famous 999 of uh, Godfather's Pizza fame when he was a political candidate. Mm -hmm. He was in the audience and he tweeted a picture of himself sitting with others in the audience. No masks, no social distancing, no nothing. A month later, Herman Cain was dead of COVID-19. 
So when people say Trump is killing people, they mean that literally, absolutely literally. And what happened after he left Tulsa was a big spike in coronavirus infections. Uh, you know, it, it, you can see this across the entire country as he travels the, the country with his political rallies. But, you know, it serves his ego. He was asked after a rally in uh, Nevada most recently, aren't you concerned? Nobody in the audience is, is wearing face masks. They're not socially distanced. There are thousands of people here. And Trump's answer summed it up. He said, I'm not concerned at all. Those people are far away from me. <laughs> from me. I'm really not worried. Because he assumes every question you ask ha has only to do with him. It's, it's hard to pick the single worst aspect about our response to the virus or Trump's response to the virus. But my choice as a physician has to be Trump's constant claim that we would have fewer cases if we did fewer tests. It's, it's like arguing that your fever will go away if you'll just stop taking your temperature. Or one I like is if, if we don't sound those tsunami horns, then that giant wave will just stop flooding inland. It's, it's all stunningly illogical, yet he keeps saying it. He keeps saying it now nine months into the pandemic. I'm sort of with you in, in trying to figure out what the worst one would be. I mean, <laughs> drinking, drinking bleach would be right up there. It's a long, long list. I actually think the greatest long-term damage he's doing, you're right in terms of, you know, just facially absurd statements. You know, shoot, I never should have gone to the doctor. He would never have found my cancer. What I fear is that the, the enduring damage and the damage that he's doing that's going to cause this to become, that has caused this, to become even more difficult to resolve than it, than it otherwise is, is going to be anyway, is the way he has undermined the medical and scientific community. He's essentially left this, the CDC uh, with completely without credibility, whether it's getting Redfield to issue cheerleading memo, uh, encouraging everybody to go back to schools, to posting completely revised guidance on, well, if you've been exposed, you don't necessarily have to get a test to then saying, well, yeah, you know what, now that the, the, the communications guy who was Trump's person keeping an eye on Alex Azar is gone, maybe we should go back and remind people, yeah, you really should get tested if you've been around it, even if you don't have symptoms. You know, the attack on the scientific community is being felt already in polls. You can see it. Uh, a couple of months ago, there was roughly 50 to 60 percent of Americans that were, were essentially saying, yeah, if a vaccine comes out, I'll take it. Well, we're now down into the 30 to 40 percent range on those people. And that's, that's due to a lot of things, including Trump's insistence that we're going to keep pushing forward. No one, people aren't trusting it now. The concern that you can't trust, the, you can't necessarily trust the FDA and the scientific people, Dr. Hahn, Dr. Redfield. The only person now with, who has retained any credibility is the one that Trump has attacked most vigorously, right. uh, which, of course, is Dr. Anthony Fauci. And I think people correctly say, as Joe Biden did the other day, if, if Dr. Fauci says to take it, I'll take it. But who else are you going to believe? Donald Trump? I don't think so. Maybe if his entire family uh, you know, gets in line and is the first to get the shot, I'll think about it. But I want to have somebody confirm that that's exactly what they were given. And, and that's the real problem, because how are you going to get over this thing if you've got people unwilling to wear masks, unwilling to be socially distant? pretending because they want to believe it, they want to believe it's over. That's just human nature, right? Sure. You know, I put in my time. Can I move on now? I've served my sentence. It must be over. And now if you add on top of that a reluctance to get a vaccine, assuming it's valid because they're no longer have confidence in the process by which it's supposedly going to be, become a valid, safe, and effective. How do you ever end this?
you put control of ending the virus in the hands of the virus. And it's sort of like a forest fire that rages out of control. It's not going to stop until every tree in the forest is, is consumed because we are human beings. We are the fuel for the virus. Several months ago on this program, talking about optimism, we, we predicted that there would be a 2020 October surprise. We said Trump is going to falsely claim that we have a vaccine ready to roll, and we've been proven right already. He's now saying we'll have one next month. The CDC and vaccine makers say that's not true for many reasons. I guess that's one lie we can count on hearing over and over again as we head toward November 3rd. Yeah, for sure. He's counting on it, and it doesn't even matter whether it bears any relationship to the truth. Uh, And as you correctly say, you know, everybody who knows anything about it from a scientific or medical point of view is, is saying it's utter nonsense. And even if you stretch it to say, well, there might be some limited availability of a vaccine for some people, it's not relevant to, to most of the world. People are getting vaccines right now as part of the testing procedure. That doesn't mean that everyone's got one around the corner. Well, that's right. And, and the other problem, of course, is that you know, there are legitimate concerns about any time you accelerate uh, the, you know, a phase three trial of a vaccine. I think there are legitimate concerns about, well, what, what are the long-term effects? Do we, have we seen enough about what this does to people across a broad spectrum of different demographic characteristics? I know that when they were, I don't know where it stands now, I know that when they were at the halfway point, a couple of the manufacturers, I think it was Pfizer and, and Moderna, were indicating that they had not been able to recruit enough of, of minority volunteers. In, and we, as we all know, the, that is where the virus has hit the hardest. And now we have a couple of scares coming out of the AstraZeneca trials from people who say, oh, well, it looks like we had to stop that one because somebody had spinal inflammation. Great. And, and the last I read about that is that it was, well, they, they could start them up again because they determined that it was a, apparently an undiagnosed case in one of the situations. We don't know about the second one, an undiagnosed case of multiple sclerosis. Well, that's reassuring. I wonder how many people out there are having a diagnosed case of sure. multiple sclerosis. You know, there, there are all sorts of nuances to what it means to have this sort of Operation Warp Speed, which is frankly a really unfortunate title to give something that you want people to believe in. I want to take this in a direction that you may not be comfortable with. Every physician has to do mental health screening tests. You know, you, that's just part of what you have to do. A lot of people are pointing out that Trump's mental capacities can be seen as diminished. He says oddball things. We have invisible airplanes. He can't remember, he tells Bob Edwards, being briefed that the virus represents the biggest national security threat of his presidency. He says he aced a test that's simply designed to screen for dementia. If the people analyze his speech and they've done so, they show that it has simplified over the years. What do you think about the possibility that, uh, that Trump is actually experiencing dementia? It's an interesting question. Here's the best way for me, and I'm not, I'm not a medical person at all, but I've, I have read a fair amount of the same thing, same thing you're describing from people who are medical professionals who have expressed really grave concerns about what they have concluded to be his uh, mental deterioration. Here is the insight that I would offer. What I learned from uh, my experience in following Trump and the Russia scandal was that if Trump accuses somebody else of doing something, it's probably something that he either has done, <laughs> is doing, or is planning to do. So every time he cracks about Joe Biden's um, mental capacity, I view that as a continuation of that same trend, that same characteristic. Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of projection, I guess psychologists would call it. It's troubling. I mean, he says crazy stuff, and he, but he's always said crazy stuff. So how do you sort that out? But I, I do think that his constant protestations about 
Joe Biden's mental state is uh, uh, protesteth a bit too much. I thought exactly the same thing. I think it's a Wilson Misner quote. The guy that says he's no fool is a guy that maybe has some doubts. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We're speaking with author, attorney, and adjunct professor of law at Northwestern University, Stephen Harper. Well, regardless of mental deterioration, uh, we know Trump's personality traits of sounding, as you point out, whatever just sounds best at the moment is integral to his actions. Uh, One of the great lies in this pandemic is that the cupboards were bare when Trump took over. It is simply not true. It is true that the National Security Agency team that was in place to monitor epidemics was disbanded under Trump. He never takes responsibility for his failures. And I guess if we look at other nations who are looking at us and our out-of-control spread and, and they're banning our visits, that their co- lack of confidence is, is justified. Now, do you see international travel remaining in limbo? For a long time. Somebody said the other day uh, after Canada has had a much better experience than, than the United States has in terms of the pandemic. And somebody said the other day, you know, they're never going to let us back in. <laughs> that it's, they'll never let Americans back into Canada. The UK's got a similar kind of leadership problem, frankly. You know, for a while they were stuck on this herd immunity thing, which is now, frankly, I think whether people realize it or not, is what Trump is doing to all of us, Trump and Dr. Scott Atlas. I I, I don't know. You know, that's part of the difficulty with this. You you don't know where it ends or how it ends at this point. We should talk a little about Scott Atlas. He's a fellow at the Hoover Institute, a conservative group. He denounced masks on Fox, after which time Trump thought that was pretty cool. So he puts them on the coronavirus task force. And pretty soon he's overruling Dr. Fauci. He seems to be the guy that got the CDC to move away from recommendation we test everybody, uh, which they're going back and forth on. This is, I guess, one point I want to ask you as a, as a law professor. Stanford repudiated him. A hundred people signed a letter saying this is ridiculous. Now he's suing Stanford. <laughs> Can he win that lawsuit? You know, I don't know. He actually filed the suit. I, I knew that an attorney who had previously represented uh, various Trump family members had sent a, a letter demanding a, a retraction right, or right. something or other. I don't know if they, if they followed through and filed a lawsuit. And I know also that the signatories to the letter essentially responded by saying, we stand by everything we said. I would be surprised if that litigation went anywhere. I guess I would put it that way. I hope he does sue and they bring out in court what a stupid thing it is that he's been doing. Well, discovery could get interesting in terms of what what sort of stuff has been happening. You know, what have have been the communications between Trump and Atlas and between Atlas and the other members of the team? How have the various revisions to uh, CDC and even in some cases FDA guidance and approvals come about? Uh, You know, that that could lead to some interesting places. I'd be surprised, frankly, if any of it happened. Well, I've been doing some numbers here looking at the home front. Uh, I see that here in California, and and I guess in Illinois, uh, it's it's running about average in terms of cases per 100,000. The red states right now, they're doing considerably worse. There are at least 18 red states doing worse than us. These are the states that listened to Trump, uh, where masks were scorned, businesses got closed late, they opened early. Social distancing got ignored. Um, these locations are, are bound to, to worsen between now and Election Day. I'm wondering if you think people are going to notice how bad we're doing in states like Arizona, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, Ohio, Wisconsin. Biden has to carry one of those to win. And um, where do you see that going? You always hate to make political predictions, especially this far out. But it does seem that as long as the story remains, the story of Trump's failed leadership on the pandemic... And as long as people attribute what they are seeing in their friends, in their neighbors, in their relatives, 
in terms of health impacts and in some cases deaths from COVID-19, then I think Trump is in trouble. The question will be, and I was talking with someone else in another state the other day, so it leans Republican state, and she was telling me was that at least in her area, people tend to blame the governor for the problems, even though it's a Republican governor, rather than Trump, which I found, in a sense, not surprising, because that's been Trump's strategy all the way, you know, for a long time. If things go bad, blame the governors. So if it goes to your point, I take no responsibility. He, ta- he doesn't want the responsibility, and this was a way for him to fob it off on the governors. So that to the extent voters look at it and say, well, my governor is the one who screwed up, and Trump's really a good guy, there's nothing you can do with those people, I think, at the end of the day. Frankly, it's a ludicrous view because, obviously, national leadership starts at the top of the nation, um, and the governors have been left to their own devices almost from the beginning uh, in terms of how to deal with this. But that's the, that's the wild card in this. But at least at this point, uh, I would certainly rather be Joe Biden than Donald Trump in terms of seeking elected office on November 3rd. One of your timelines has to do with the, the United States Postal Service. Uh, it seems clear that Trump is already planning to contest this election, uh, especially if it's the mail-in ballots that are critical and as they seem bound to go against him. Even if assuming the cases increase, which is a certainty in the public notices, which is also likely, then really his re-election hinges on you know, what happens with the U.S. Postal Service. And um, I guess my question is, what do, you, what do you have to say about that? That is an interesting one because unless it has changed in the last week or so, the overwhelming majority of Democrats were going to vote by mail in most states, and the overwhelming majority of Republicans said they were not, that they were going to do in-person voting. So the, the risk is, is, I guess, several fold. One, what that means is, depending upon when the votes are counted, you could be in a situation where uh, the votes actually get to where they're supposed to be, notwithstanding the efforts of Trump's minions to do everything they can to make that difficult in terms of the operation of the Postal Service. The question will be whether or not, with a a purely illusory lead on election night based on in-person voting in some states, Trump will at that point declare victory, and then we're going to be off to the races in a world of litigation everywhere where there's mail-in votes that push the, the margin back over to to Biden. And if the if the projections, or I should say, if what people say they're going to do in terms of in-person voting versus mail-in voting hold true, then Biden could, in fact, win in a landslide based on all votes counted, although the, all votes won't necessarily be counted until uh, mid-November, perhaps, right. uh, but nevertheless not be ahead on election night. So the challenge will be for the media and for, frankly, for the American people is to be able to engage in a little bit of deferred gratification, not collapse under the weight of Trump's newest lie, which will be, see the people spoken, I won on election night, it's over, which is a ploy he did in, in a primary, I can't remember which one, and, uh, and spend, the re- spend the next several weeks litigating. They're already litigating. I mean, they've already, oh my, yeah. they've already got lawsuits all over the place, challenging different ways in which governors and election officials have tried to accommodate mail-in voting. What's happening at the post office is part of a, a much broader strategy that, as you correctly note, really goes to undermining the integrity of the election itself. And, and it's pretty simple to see, right? If you thought you were going to win, would you do this stuff? <laughs> exactly. Zero chance, right? Exactly. If you thought even you had a reasonable chance to win, would you do this stuff? For Trump, it's always about 
victory at any cost. We're speaking with attorney Stephen Harper, author and adjunct professor of law at Northwestern University, about his numerous coronavirus timelines, which appear on BillMoyers.com. There's a, there's a sidelight issue to the USPS. It just surfaced a couple days ago. We recently learned that a plan for, for the Postal Service to mail 650 million masks to every American got scuttled by the White House in something like April. It was supposedly to avoid panic. Yeah, in April. It, even my jaw dropped uh, <laughs> when I saw that. Just imagine if, if in April, even in April, you know, we were already behind the eight ball, but just imagine if in April Trump had gotten on TV and said, you are going to receive in the mail uh, face masks, wear them, you'll save lives, I'm going to do the same thing. There would be tens of thousands of people who would be alive today if he had done that. Tens of thousands of people. That's why I say it's not a stretch to say negligent homicide. And, and by the way, that's a state crime for which no one can pardon him. Now, the statute of limitations on that can go for a long time. In most states, there isn't even a statute of limitations on murder. Wouldn't it be interesting if an enterprising attorney general in some state took a close look at some series of deaths based on the timing, how they occurred, when they occurred, uh, and so on, and, and what sort of... It could even, be a, could even be somebody who was a Trump supporter. Couldn't that be an interesting twist to the story? Yes, indeed. You know, I, would, I slightly dispute the, the assertion that we've lost tens of thousands. A lot of studies by, I guess, I think it's Columbia University, yep. uh, looking at what would have happened if he'd acted one week or two weeks earlier, they came up with 57% to 86% of the lives having been saved by May 3rd. So we're, really, we're talking about something like two-thirds of our death rate, maybe three-quarters, which is, which is over 100,000 people. Yeah. And we still are. The latest University of Washington IHME projection, which I think is, it went to 415,000 by January 1st, just a couple of days ago, they moved it down to 378,000. But even they said that if they got mass compliance, I think it was they needed 95%, which you're never going to get, you could save over 100,000 lives. That's going forward. That's going forward. So it's, just staggering. The, the woulda, coulda, shoulda, and what might have been is going to haunt, well, it's haunting families forever. It's haunting the, the, the survivors of these families forever, and it's going to haunt people even who recover from the, from the disease uh, with long-term, you know, the so-called long haulers with the long-term implications that we don't, we don't even, we're just beginning to understand. Let's take a look into the future. The estimates are 300,000 dead by December. You say 400,000 in the year. Sounds possible to me. We have to look at the possibility of Trump winning this thing and being declared the winner. And of course, con- the continued mismanagement extending into 2021 could send this number up to a million people. I mean, I, I, think, a lot, I think a lot of people would agree with that. What should we be thinking about in terms of January and that, ho- and that unsettling possibility? Six months ago, I would have said, maybe it's time to get your passport in order and see what the residency requirements are for other countries. <laughs> but now no one will take us. So I think that ship has sailed. I think in an individual sense, and this is just my own personal view, I think we've entered a period where we're, we're, we're conducting, every, every household is conducting, every person really in every household is engaged in an, in an experiment that's a combination of deferred gratification and natural selection. I think what you have to do is, frankly, take a page out of Trump's book, which is to say, He's essentially telling people, you're on your own. He's telling governors they're on their own. He's telling schools they're on their own, although he wants them all in school. He wants them all in session. 
Um, he wants every he wants to watch his football games, I guess. Although he hated football a year ago, and I think it's a question of individuals having to take a, 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 a sense of responsibility, recognizing that at least in Trump and his government, they don't have anyone that's looking out for them, except Dr. Anthony Fauci, perhaps. Uh, I, I don't think that's much of an exaggeration. So what does that mean? It means you better wear a mask. It means you better do everything you can to be socially distant. It means you better figure out a way to do everything you can to keep your kids safe, to keep your, your loved ones safe. It means you need to think about everything you do with the notion that whatever you do may be the most important thing you do in protecting not only your health, but the health of everyone around you. It's, it's a sad thing to say for a so-called civilized nation like the United States. But frankly, that's what I've been doing for the last six months, seven months since this all started. It's, it's extraordinarily it, inconvenient isn't the, isn't the right word for it. And of course, not everyone has those options. We have essential workers that we put in harm's way. We're sending hospital workers. Uh, they've been over. Uh, the Guardian is running a, is, is continuing a, an analysis, but I think it's over a thousand uh, hospital workers and frontline responders that have died from the coronavirus. If you have the option, you've got to do everything you can at the margins to try to influence your health and the health of the public in any positive way you can. The one good news in all of this is that you would hope that even if Trump won, he would no longer feel compelled to continue having rallies. But who knows? You know, after he won in 2017, he kept having rallies then. So, there's, you know, there are no guarantees about any of this. It's a thought that's that frankly is too depressing if I linger on it too long. So I'm gonna I'm working really hard to make sure that doesn't happen. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess my final question to you, Stephen Harper, is what advice do you give us, uh, and, and and where are we headed? I mean, what, what what's what's your what's your final summation of our conversation here? What I would offer is are the words of uh, wisdom of of a, an author and philosopher. She was a German American philosopher, Hannah Arendt, who. Many of your listeners may be familiar with. She wrote uh, Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil, and in 1963. And in, in 1974, during an interview with the New York Review of Books, she said this, and I think it's a cautionary tale that almost 50 years later we should all heed. If everybody always lies to you, the consequence is not that you believe the lies, but rather that nobody believes anything any longer. This is because lies, by their very nature, have to be changed, and a lying government has constantly to rewrite its own history. On the receiving end, you get not only one lie, a lie which you could go on for the rest of your life, but you get a great number of lies depending on how the political wind blows. And a people that no longer can believe anything cannot make up its mind. It is deprived not only of its capacity to act, but also of its capacity to think and to judge. And with such a people, you can then do what you please. I, I think that's really the cautionary tale of our time. I've got a couple of articles laying around, which are not handy at the moment, but it was, it was about Russia and the strategy that Putin and others have done in Russia, which is to confuse people to the point where they, as you're describing, simply don't know what to believe. And on this show months ago, we said, I think that's what they're doing here. No question. Yeah. Yep. And if you wanted to pair it with, uh, with an even older uh, insight, go to George Orwell, 1984. You know, the party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. It was their final, most essential command. We've used the Richard Pryor joke. Who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? That's it. That's <laughs> it. That's thing. exactly right. Or, 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 or the corpse that, was, that used to be your, your uncle. You know, it's astonishing.
it's it's frightening, frankly, but it's also apparently human nature. Well, I'm hoping that TrumpPandemic.net can follow the trail you're blazing here, and and we can build on some of what's on on your timelines. I certainly hope so. This is probably a good place to 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 stop things, but we would like to continue this conversation. So we we do invite you to return to the show in October. Happy to do it anytime. Our guest has been Stephen J. Harper, adjunct professor of law at Northwestern University and author of a score of pandemic timelines, which we strongly urge you to check out at BillMoyers.com. Thank you for speaking with us. Keep up the good work. Really appreciate it, Doug. Thanks. And the same to you. All right. Let us take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax.